Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 7th, 2019. This is episode 2354 of the Survival Podcast. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. It is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, and you put TSPC in the subject line. And when you do that, then you can put question for Jack, uh, comment for Jack, Jack, you're a jerk, whatever you want to. Just make sure you put TSPC in the subject line first, as though it's a word, all connected together. And that way, if it goes into the box of doom known as the junk mail folder, eventually I will get off my dead butt and do a filtered search for that thing before I purge 4,000 emails out of it and find it and drag it out and, you know, maybe it'll end up on the air. The way to get on the air. And it's kind of going, goes in line with the picture I put out for Friday's show about calls. Um, make your freaking point immediately. Bottom line up front. One sentence, either what you're pointing out or what your question is. If I am looking at your, your, your email and I'm like 20, 30 seconds into it, and I still don't know what you're going to ask me, delete. It's not being a dick. It really isn't. It's... The pure volume, if I gave everybody who sent me an email two minutes to read their email, I would do nothing but email, and I would not have any time left in the day at all. I would have to hire someone um, to, to get through all my email if I gave every email two minutes of my time. There's, there's, there's literally 144 hours in a week, and all you got to do is the math on my volume, and I would, I would burn all hours. So... I got to be able to look, evaluate, and say, yeah, this is something we're going to talk about today or not. Please do that for me. The, the picture for Friday was the uh, trailer down by the Riverside guy. Can't think of it. I think it's from SNL. Uh, they got his flips out on people. Kind of makes you think of Stephen Harris. Um, and he was, he, he, he was saying, the reason Jack never responds to your calls is 45 seconds into it. He still doesn't know what the hell your question is. Calls, emails, bottom line up front. So here's what we got today. Um, one, the first one actually doesn't come from a listener feedback directly, indirectly. Good friend of the show, good friend of mine personally, John Willis of SOE Tactical Gear, has a new podcast. I'll tell you a little bit about that and why I think it's kind of cool. But I listened to his most recent episode, and they were talking about cell phones and uh, how people don't talk anymore. And I thought, you know, I really need to talk about this. My wife and I have had some conversations about this recently, um, both how, how much we let it affect our own lives, uh, but how we see it really affect other people. And uh, some things that, uh, that were said on John's podcast that made me feel like I, I should talk about this. Uh, next up, okay, fine. You keep asking. I will tell you today why I don't give a fiddler's fart about the government shutdown. I really don't care. I will tell you one thing you might have to worry about if you live in kind of urban centers or something like that, or, or frequent them. And just to be aware of, and just stay the hell out of the way, and everything will be fine. Um, getting others on board with prepping. Why it's great, but why you should focus mostly on you. Um, do we want to, I think sometimes the way I used to describe it for one of my old business partners, when he was trying to develop an employee beyond either their capability or more often their ambition, was you can't breathe for other people. And we'll talk about that with you know, spreading prepping today. Of grinders, bones, and feeding dogs, rabbits. A little short segment on that. 
more on making Excel, I do mean Microsoft Excel, and spreadsheets in general, a life skill along with the algebra people actually use. Um, why you shouldn't overthink a pump for a small aquaponics system? Why we just, you know, pick something and get going and some, you know, some ideas about how to maximize their life cycle and what have you, but why you really just, you know, pick something and, and run with it with a smaller system. Uh, how to leave silver to your heirs. I'll talk about that and why sometimes we overthink things that we don't need to. Uh, is eating eggs frequently safe to do? Is there such a thing as eating too many eggs? Real brief segment there. And then I'm going to anchor the show with a segment that actually ties into the item of the day, um, which is why I now cook exclusively, almost exclusively is the way to say it, I guess, with carbon steel cookware. Now, I don't mean for boiling soups and stuff like that, but if, if it's going to go in a pan, uh, man, it's carbon steel all the way, and it's just become more and more so over the last couple of years. And I've always had good things to say about uh, cast iron, and I still like cast iron for certain things, but... I'm going to tell you why I've kind of, like, even my old Griswolds and stuff like that that I found over the years are kind of hanging up and in the background and just not getting much use. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, today, Ridge Wallet. Ridge Wallet is just a great product. Here, here's what it does for you. Number one, it helps you minimize. You get all of the stuff that you used to clutter up that, that billfold with, or ladies, a big, giant, super wallet in your purse that weighs as much as the purse itself, And you realize, hey, look, I don't really need all that. And you pare it down to what you actually need to have. Number two, it looks cool. Hey, you know, you can be a prepper and look cool. You actually can do that. The Wazoo Survival guys say they want to make, you know, survival sexy. Well, the Ridge Wallet is sexy in that context, like fashionable sexy. I get people all the time like, what is that? Where'd you get that, et cetera. Oh, that's, and some people are like, oh, that's the Ridge Wallet um, when, I, when I pull my wallet out. And then next, identity theft protection. Uh, you know, credit card companies, et cetera, have all gone to these RFID-enabled uh, cards that has all your information on it and an $8 part off of eBay. Somebody can come by and wand your ass and get your, your card information. Well, not if it's in a Ridge Wallet. They can't. So check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Check out their other cool stuff, and remember, they do a discount for MSV members. Next up today, Jam Bullion. We're going to talk about silver today. For inheritance purposes. So I'll go brief on, on, on J.M. Bullion's uh, piece today. I'm just going to say, when you have a company that supported this show for seven years, has, has good or better pricing as any major silver house in the industry, and does a discount for this audience if you're an MSB member, why would you buy your silver from anybody but J.M. Bullion? Check them out today at jambullion.com. And I wanted to say something about, I said last week when I talked about J.M. Bullion, that there's a company that advertises you know multiple times a day on Fox News. And I don't want to say their name, but if you watch Fox News, and you probably shouldn't, but if you do, um, you, you probably can figure out who they are. Um, there's actually a guy endorsing that company that's been on the show a couple times. His name's Chris, and I have a lot of respect for him. But that commercial is the exact reason that I do not work with companies like that. Um, there's that one line in that commercial, if you've seen it. Silver, it's trending higher! They've run that commercial for like four years now. It can't always be trending higher. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's deceitful and it, it's all about pushing buttons and triggering people and getting them to do what you want, whether it's in their best interest or not. I like companies that say, hey, silver, gold, platinum, et cetera, has always been a good investment. It's always been a good store of wealth. What we do is provide the same product everybody else does for a very competitive price with better service. 
That's GM Bullion, and that's why I have them as my sponsor. And that's why I recommend that you do business with them. And just real quick, before we start today's feedback show, let's go ahead and remind you guys that you can support this show. How? Join the MSB or Members Support Brigade. You'll get a bunch of discounts. It'll pay for your membership, and you get to support the show that you love. So do consider becoming a member today. It is you guys that are members that make this show possible. Without, without MSB... This show does not work. What it would be is a place where I have to take a lot more sponsors, charge them a lot more money, and be beholden to my sponsors. By making this a membership-led program, I am beholden to you, the listener. And that is my commitment. It always has been such, and that's why we do the things the way we do here. With that, let's go ahead and get into it. So I was listening to uh, Pulling the Thread, I think is the name of, of, of John Willis's podcast. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes today for you. Um, but it, it's him and his, his buddy from, 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 you know, SOE gear, Sully, and they just talk about all kinds of, uh, of random crap, but kind of Liberty oriented, what's going on in the world, stuff like that. Uh, lots of politics, lots of economic stuff, but they were talking about how one of the problems we have in America is everybody's too damn comfortable. And that's why people tolerate so much abuse by the state. And they're spot on about that. And they got into cell phones, and I think Sully was the one that said it's kind of like you have a babysitter. You wake up in the morning, and the first thing you do is check your phone. You go take a dump, you check your phone. You know, you're always on your phone. And they got into a discussion about it, and John was saying how even him, he's like, he'll be at the, like, go out to eat with, with his wife, uh, Amanda, or something, and, you know, use it for a little bit when they first sit down, and then consciously put it away, but then sit there, and they don't really talk anymore. And and I think this is a, a big problem, and I want to tell you another real quick story before I get into this and why I think we need to address it uh, at a, a family level uh, in this audience to make sure that we're not doing this. My wife and I, a, a few weeks ago, went out, and we actually thought about coming up with a hashtag called uh, like cell phone shame or something like that. And, and just start posting pictures like Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, whatever, hashtag with cell phone shame, to make people aware of what they actually look like when they're doing this. And, you know, I think this can be over, uh, over, overthought sometimes or over-persecuted, I guess, or whatever. Like, you, it's easy to look down your nose at somebody and not realize what's going on. Uh, you know, yes, was it sun Saturday, my wife and I went to the Fort Worth Zoo, And uh, there was a point where we were having lunch afterward, and I had my phone out, and we were looking something up, basically getting information we both wanted. And I guess if you were at an adjoining table and you looked over, you'd think, oh, look, another couple, and they can't even talk to each other. He's on his phone. Uh, where I was actually talking to her about what I was looking up. I don't even remember what it was, but that, that's what was going on. And um, that's not what was going on a few weeks ago when we went out. We went to a place called Glorious we really like in downtown uh, Fort Worth. And there were four women. Three of them were clearly like in their 50s, somewhere in that range, maybe 60s. And there was an older lady that could have been 90. She could have been 85, I don't know. But it was very clear we had three daughters taking mom to lunch. Really, really nice. Well, these three women spent the entire meal on their phones. They didn't not only ignore their mother, they pretty much ignored each other. And I mean the whole meal. Like we were there, we go to this place, we kind of hang out, we people watch, we talk. And, and we were there for well over an hour. And, and my wife said, what I wouldn't give 
to have one more dinner with my mom. And that really resonated with me. And, you know, we are guilty. We are all guilty living in the information age of letting this little box we carry around pull us out of the real world at times. My, my bigger concern is hearing somebody like John say, you know, even when we put the phone down, we don't have anything to talk about. That's because we use these phones as a crutch. That's because we use these phones as a crutch. They are an amazing tool, but they're a lot like a drug. You use them for what they're good for, and then you stop. So if you're driving in your car and you want to listen to a podcast or you want to listen to music, the phone is great for that. If you run a business and you do a lot of social media with your business and you're on your phone doing something, interacting with your customers, etc., or drumming up business, that's a good thing. However, even that, isn't there a time where you're done with work for the day? I mean, I'm the guy that's like, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and get shit done if that's the only time. And I mean it. But at some point, isn't there a point where, hey, you can't work all the time? You're not going to be on your deathbed someday going, gee, I wish I would have answered one more post on Twitter. That's not going to happen. So some of the things I think that we should do, number one, the iPhone has an app. Uh, I think it's a native app, but you might have to turn it on. That tells you every week, gives you a report, how much screen time you're doing a day. It notates up or down from last week. I think it's important to look at that number and then do some math. If that number is two hours a day, that's 14 hours a week you're on your phone. Now, if you're a kind of person that when you're driving in your car and you're, stream, and you're streaming a podcast or you're streaming Pandora or something like that, you leave the screen open because it's plugged in, I, I imagine that can affect that screen time. And if you do use your phone a lot with work, answering, well, figure out how much of that is legitimate work when you're supposed to be doing it, and then what's left over. And again, if it's two hours left over, you know, it's like two hours a day, there's only 24 hours in a day and you should be sleeping eight of them. That only leaves 16. If you work eight, because you work a regular job, and I know most of us work more than eight, but you work eight. Okay, now you're down to eight. So of the eight hours that you had to interact with people, you spent 25% of them looking at your phone at pictures of cats or arguing with some ass clown on Facebook about some shit that doesn't matter. We really got to think about that. The other side is the concept of where we're at today when, when especially couples or family members of any kind do put the phone down and then they just sit there quietly and they don't know what to talk about. Talk about something. Talk about something. What were you just on your phone looking at for 15 minutes? Discuss that. You just discussed it with, tw you discussed it with 20 strangers. You know, what really made me sad for that old lady that, that was clearly mom in that group of women was she didn't have a phone. She's one of those people that's too old to really care about a phone. And she just looked so unhappy. And so, like, remember Maxwell Smart with the cone of silence? As though somebody had actually kind of put the cone around her. Or maybe around her daughters is a better way to look at it. They're in the cone of silence, and she's just sitting there supposed to be spending time with them. There's something to talk about. And... Um, I can't think of the guy's name. Dennis Prager. I don't listen to talk radio very much, but every once in a while I end up in the vehicle. And Dennis is a Dennis Prager is a guy I don't agree with 100% for sure, but he's a guy I really like because he's intellectual. And he actually thinks about the reasons he believes what he believes. So even when we disagree, I know he knows why he believes what he believes. And he also comes up with some stuff that really makes you think at times. And what he said, we was talking about Christmas. And uh, he said that, you know, 
you should have a Merry Christmas. You should have a happy, joyful Christmas. And that's why I heard it, because it was during the shutdown, and I went to Petsco, Petco to get some stuff for my fish tanks. That, that's where I was. So I'm listening to this, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, one of the real pro he was talking to this lady that called it, and he does, like, themes for his call-ins. And people were calling in and saying, it just doesn't feel like Christmas. It doesn't feel like a Merry Christmas. And he finally said to one lady, you have to make it a Merry Christmas. And that one of the problems that we have in the world today, and this goes back to Sully's comment on being too comfortable, um, because we're so comfortable, we've been led to believe that things just happen. That are like if two people uh, like each other and have similar interests in any way, shape, or form and live together, then when they just sit together, they should just have a conversation. And the, the, the real thing that burns you in the ass is that happens a lot of times. But when it doesn't, It's not like something's wrong. It's that you're too damn lazy to think about what should we talk about. Discuss the menu. Talk about a movie you want to go see. Talk about a vacation you want to take. It's amazing because there is kind of a just will happen, but you have to make the effort to start it. So I, I just want I thought this was a really important topic, and I, I wanted to kind of give you guys some impetus to make an effort to, one, spend less time on your damn phones. And number two, when you're with somebody, put the damn thing down, okay? Uh, and number three, once you've put it down, make a consorted effort to have a constructive conversation with that person. And for the love of God, if you can't think of anything nice to say, then go ahead and remain silent. You go out to eat with somebody or something like that, especially a wife, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, whatever, and you want to bring up and dig up negative things during that, don't do that. Enjoy the time together. There's plenty of time to talk about negative stuff. We were at the zoo, and we saw this lady just snap at her husband. They had two girls, and the girls wanted to sit at a different table than the mother did. And uh, the, 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 the mother acquiesced and, let, and moved, moved, or did not acquiesce, and moved them to a different table, which didn't mean a damn thing. And you could see the guy's face like, why are we fighting this battle? Like, like, Why, why, why not just get like? There's so much, and I'm sure he's thinking there's so much shit we just give them what they want anyway. Why are we gonna, you know, fight? Put a put a, a stake in the ground over which table we sit at? And she snapped at him, and I don't know what was said or anything, but Dorothy looked at me and goes, oh, "Time for us to leave." <laughs> so we all passed out of there. Uh, but he had the "Please kill me" look. That's for sure. Don't don't do that. All right. Next up, let's talk about the government shutdown. The government shut. Oh! Who's going to get blamed for the government shutdown? Is it Trump's shutdown or is it the Schumer shutdown? I don't give a fiddler's fart. I don't give two shits from Shinola about the government shutting down. Uh, first of all, the government's not shutting down. They're still blowing people up. They're still doing that. Well, so and so is working without pay. They'll get their effing money sooner or later. If you are a federal employee and you can't go a couple weeks without a paycheck, without ending up in bankruptcy, you are the problem. None of those jobs are, you know, jobs for piss-poor wages where people need to live hand-to-mouth. They might choose to. That's your problem. And welcome to the real world where Americans, on a daily basis, lose jobs and get laid off. It's the same shit. I don't want to hear your whiny cry bullshit if you're one of the people among them. But our soldiers have, and they're being fed, and they're still being given bullets, and just, just relax. Like, there's no nothing going on here. This comes because 
Uh, Molly sent me an email. She said, can you take a few minutes and talk about the government shutdown? How does this happen and who does it affect? Also, do these workers get paid in the end? Does the shutdown actually cost the taxpayers more money in the end? It, it, it doesn't really cost us more money. Uh, it costs us the same money. We don't save anything by shutting down. It's not like all these, yes, these people are going to get paid. And in most instances throughout history of government shutdowns, furloughed workers get paid back pay. So they basically get a paid vacation, okay, uh, but they get paid later. Now, I'm going to get an email from some hateful sons of bitches telling me how they were in a part of a government shutdown and they didn't get paid. And there are some, but it is the minority, And the majority that don't get paid and don't get back paid are contractors. And the reason they don't get back paid is they're not paid a salary. They're paid for hours worked. And they actually didn't work the hours. You know, and I'm not saying it's not uncomfortable. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt if you're in that situation. But if you're a government worker, especially a federal employee, you should know this is the one thing that can interrupt your income. How does it happen? It happens when we run out of money that's been appropriated. It doesn't mean the government doesn't have money. It means that the money has not been appropriated with a spending bill. And it is the responsibility of Congress, the House and the Senate, to pass a spending bill and, and work on you know recon the reconciliation process to where it passes both chambers, and then they send it to the president. The president signs it, like any bill, And then it becomes, in effect, law. And then that money is released and it is apportioned okay, or appropriated to X amount for Y and Z amount for A, etc. This much for the military, this much for the wall, this much for giving flowers to orphans or whatever other bullshit they're flushing your money down the toilet to do. Okay? And when the president and the Congress can't agree on that, or the Congress can't agree on that, eventually you reach a point where the prior spending allocations are done. They've run out, and now money sits there, but it can't go anywhere because it's not, it's not appropriated. It hasn't been earmarked. There's that word again, earmarking. Um, so then you have a standoff. And it's pretty much, you know, good, bad, and ugly music. Cue it up, and who blinks first? And what Trump has said is, I'm not blinking. Now, here's the one thing that, you know, I don't really like Trump overall, but I'll tell you one thing I respect about him. In general, when that some bitch says he's going to do something, if he can, he's going to. And I think for the first time in my adult life, we have a president that would like to be reelected, but doesn't really give a shit if he gets reelected. I guess Ford, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think Trump really cares. Like, he, I'm sure he feels like if, if I don't get reelected, I'm going to go back to being a billionaire. And so I got that going for me, and I'm getting older, and I have to deal with this shit I have to deal with every day. Uh, you know, it's not a guy, he's not a guy that's been a politician his whole life. And no matter what you think about the guy, he didn't become president to make more money. Because he could make a hell of a lot more money gaming the system like he did his entire career than being president. So, you know, I, I got to respect that in the guy. And I do think he's going to hold the line on this. I think the Democrats are infected with TARD, or Trump Anger Resistance Disorder. And they've overplayed their hand with their, their base. So much to Trump being a Nazi and Trump being, you know, a racist. The guy's the worst racist ever, 
right? He, he did prison reform. No other president would touch it. He got that done. You know, I mean, he's, he's done more for inner cities and stuff than any president's ever done. He's like the worst racist ever. He's put more women into high-paid salaries in the private sector and in the positions of power in, in government than any president has. And so he's the worst misogynist ever. It's just, it's just stupid, but they overplayed it. Now they can't give him anything. And this is asinine if you're the Democrats. Because the Democrats could right now put together a deal and say, we want 100% of DACA. Done. As, as law of the land. They can get enough Republicans to break and do it with them and give the guy $5 billion bucks for a wall. And before you bitch about $5 billion, bucks, if you have a pie chart and you take a, a pie chart about the size of, let's say, a small... Um, like a like a, pl a plate that you put a teacup on, and then get yourself a toothpick, and put it from the center of that tea that plate to the outside of that plate. Five billion dollars in our our budget's about the width of that toothpick, probably a little skinnier. It's I know it sounds like a lot of money to you and me, and it is to you and me, but in a government scheme of things, it's a rounding error. Now this doesn't mean I'm for the wall or against the wall or for the Democrats or for dog. I'm just saying if you're if you are the leadership in your Democrat world. And you want a political victory, being able to say, we got a path to citizenship or even permanent residency for all of the dreamers and getting Trump to just throw it up and give it to you for $5 billion when you were okay with $25 billion a year ago. And you won't do it. It proves these people are infected with a disease. And it has gone from being tarred. Trump anger resistance disorder to recurrent extreme Trump anger resistance disorder. Yes, retard. They are behaving like retards. But you have to understand the psychology here. They're really not. Because they're afraid that they're going to get slaughtered in their own primaries next year if they give in to Trump at all. So who's going to blink first? You got a guy that doesn't care if he gets reelected. And you got a group that believes that they are better off letting this thing go on for months than not. Now, the only thing that I think you need to be aware of so that you can stay out of the way if things start to go sideways with it, it looks like food stamps and then maybe some welfare payments and stuff like that. Like, Social Security is going to get paid. They all know not to go there. But, like, snap cards and stuff not getting refilled, this happened by mistake for one cycle Back in like 2010 or something like that, in Atlanta, it was like it was just one office, and it was a Monday that was a government holiday, and there was a riot, and they almost pulled the wall off of the building, the government building, wherever the Social Security building or whatever that people assumed had they money for their SNAP card, and it was damn near a riot over one cycle. And the reason they didn't get paid was because of the government holiday and a glitch, and they were going to get paid the next day, and there was almost a riot over it. So let it go a couple months. Let it go a couple weeks. Yeah, it could get you could get some riots and stuff out of it. So that's that's the only thing. Because otherwise, it's the government not working. Well, as a libertarian or an anarchist, she should be great with that. Um, as far as I've determined, it has not affected the water in my pool. Now, one more thing before I go on from this. Please stop with the stupid memes that say, well, the government's not processing my return, but they're still going to take my money out of my check. Okay, those two things are not related, and the last thing you would want is the government to not take the money out of your check, even though that's not what's happening. I'll explain that in a second. But you're going to have to pay the taxes, So if they stopped taking money out of your check for federal withholding and all, 
during the shutdown, you're just going to get a big bill for it when you go back when they when they come back. So you wouldn't want that anyway. But the government doesn't take money out of your check. I guess unless you're a federal employee and then a department takes money, but they operate like an entity. Your employer takes money out of your check and sends it to the government. Your employer takes money out of your check and sends it to the government. One more time, it is your employer that does the withholding and sends it to the government. And it's important that you know that because there have been instances where companies have done federal withholding on their employees, been cash-strapped, and, and have tried to play Ponzi scheme with it. Well, I'll pay it back next week. I'll pay it back next week and not paid the money to the government. And then maybe the people that run the company disappear, and even though they're really the ones that are culpable, sometimes employees get bills. So it's good that you know that if you're ever working, especially for a small company that can become cash-strapped, you might want to just make sure that the withholding is actually going to the government, and if nothing else, you keep every pay stub, et cetera, that shows it was taken from you so that you can at least defend yourself if that ever comes up. And yes, It has happened. Next up from Chris. Chris says, Hi, Jack. Do you have any tips for getting others on board with preparedness? I live in Saskatchewan, Canada. I've been planning to ask your thoughts on what types of emergency situations might pop, pipe up, pop up in an area like ours. Then, boom, last month, several days of rhyme. Frost took out uh, major power lines uh, in the province and triggered a shutdown of three major dams. This left the, the, almost the entire province without power for eight hours. Had this happened when the weather wasn't as mild, right now we're seeing negative 35 Celsius. And screw that, mate. That's why I do not live in Canada right there. Uh, things could have gotten ugly. There's, of course, the threat of tornadoes here, but none have hit the city in several decades. As a result, people are lax about it. They just seem to think they're limited to weather-chasing TV shows. I'm sure you've covered this type of thing before, but any advice on opening others' minds, at least friends and family, without sounding preachy is always helpful. Thanks for your great work, Chris. Um, so, number one, I think spreading preparedness is a good idea, but it needs to be done as the planting of a seed, not the plowing of a field. And, and so what I mean by that is if you're in somebody's shit about anything, even something they know they should do, you make the odds of them actually doing it lower. I mean, let's say that you really should be exercising more. And as your friend, I'm in your shit every day. Did you do your push-ups today? Did you do your sit-ups? You, are you going to get to the point where you're just like, I don't want to hear this shit anymore? And, and I now you begin to have a negative view of me. And then by proxy, you end up having a negative view of the thing that I'm in your shit about. You don't even want to think about it anymore. And eventually you'll damage the relationship with me to the point where uh, or I'll damage the relationship with you to where you don't want to talk to me anymore. You're going to avoid me. And that's not what we want in our relationship with friends and family. Um, then there's the other thing. People are going to do what they're going to do. And we got to go back to circle of influence and circle of concern. And then the, the circle we leave out of that a lot of times we talk about it is a circle of control, which is much, much smaller. So you have influence over those people. You do not have control. Influencers are smart. They influence. And then they shut up and go back to where they control. And it is in their circle of control that they have the greatest influence. Aha. Uh -huh. That sounds confusing. It's not. What I mean is a lot of you guys out there want to start a business. They listen to this show. And this show is part of why you want to start a business. As an influencer, I occasionally talk about entrepreneurial topics and ideas and things and the advantages of being a business owner. But I don't get on the air every day and go, you need, Joe, 
Joe, I got another email from you, and it wasn't about starting a business, Joe. Or Chris. Chris, you emailed me about preparedness, but you didn't talk about starting a business. Why haven't you started a business? So it's not like I am pushing starting a business on you guys. What you do is you look at this and go, Jack seems like a pretty happy dude. Jack's got his shit together. Jack has a great life. Well, I want that. Well, one of the ways Jack did that is he's been a serial entrepreneur his whole life. Maybe I should look into this entrepreneurship thing. And Jack even says it's not for everybody. So maybe it is, maybe it isn't for me, but it's worth it's worth checking out. And I can dabble with it and try a side hustle and see where it leads and learn from it. And so the influencer has the greatest influence through strict adherence to his principles within his circle of control. So if you want others to be prepared, be prepared. And help them in any little way possible that has to do with preparedness. You know, when the power goes out and you, you pick your cell phone up and you call this person you're so concerned with and go, Hey, uh, lights are out and all. How you doing? Do you need anything? Is your, is your phone charged? And even remind them of something like, like, well, yeah, I only got 20% of my phone. I, do you, do you have a car charger? Yeah, you know, your car will charge your phone, right? You know, if you have an extra inverter and not far away, And they're worried about the refrigerator. You go over there, plug an inverter in for them, run an extension cord, throw some you know blankets over their refrigerator. Say, here, plug this thing in and out of your car for an hour every eight hours till the power comes back on. And then, here's the important thing. That's your shit. That's not a gift. So when the power comes back on, you go get shit back. They go, well, well I can tell you how to get them and go to T-SPAS, right? So, I mean, these are the, the better way to, to expose people to preparedness is by living a prepared lifestyle. Because this always is the same thing with anything you're trying to get people on board with. It's the same faulty thinking, I guess you'd say. So let's say that up on top of this mountain, there was gold. I mean, just freaking big chunks, like, you know, like hand-fisted sizes where you can take a bag up there and that's all you can get up there is with a backpack. And, and literally you have room every time you come back down for more gold. But it's gold is heavy, so you can't even carry it. There's so much of it up there. And so your buddy Bob or your brother Bob or whatever, you know, he's broke. So you're like, dude, there's gold up there. And he goes, ah, no, there's not. And you go, look at, look at, here's my gold. I just came down with a load. Come with me. We're going to get more now. And if he goes, eh, I don't know, screw him. You go up the mountain, you get the gold, Right? I mean, that's what you would do, because other people are doing this, and it's going to run out. So you want to go get as much as you can while you can. So you might be willing to share that information with Bob, but you ain't dragging his ass up the mountain, Chris. And that's the approach we have to come out with this. I'm doing this because these are the right ways to do things. And it makes me think I have an audience member who's been here a few times, who's a, a dedicated listener, and he knows everything I teach, but he doesn't really do it. And we had an occasion to end up dealing with his brother. And what his brother said about him is he said that he is the guy that keeps telling you to put smoke detectors in your house while his house is on fire. And a lot of people that I think want to spread things, you're talking about smoke, uh, smoke detectors in somebody else's house. And maybe your house isn't on fire But there's some oil smoking in a pan on the oven that you maybe need to take care of before it does catch on fire. 
So you focus on you, and other people will follow what you're doing. It's almost like we could write a song about it, make your own way, and the others will follow. Next up, question from Justin. Justin says, my question is, to grind or not to grind? Details, bones all uh, on bones. All of the info I found on the STX3000 grinder you recommended says not to grind bones. My first three litters of meat rabbits will be born next weekend. I want to grind them up as dog food as soon as they're ready. Uh, would you grind the whole animal bones and all? Process them a different way. Uh, my dogs are mainly inside dogs. I want a finished product that will allow me to feed them inside. I was thinking just grind the rabbit and then put in the freezer thoughts. Thanks for all you do and continuously answering all of my off-the-wall questions, Justin, in Florida. Well, first of all, Justin, if I'm raising really high-quality protein in the form of rabbits, I don't know that I'm going to feed that to my dogs. I'm going to be feeding that to me and feed my dogs all the scrap and leftover. But, I mean, if it was me, um, the way I would do it, is I'd pull the skin off the rabbit and get a great big meat cleaver, and I would just chop that rabbit into pieces that are, you know, manageable size, and throw it in a bowl and give it to the dog. I, that's what I would do. Nick Ferguson, now he has a fairly large dog. It's an Anatole and Pyrenees cross, but he just cervically dislo does cervical dislocation on the rabbit, and then, like, hacks the rabbit in half and just throws fur everything, just throws them half a rabbit one day and half the next, or half for each dog. Um, my dog, Charlie, occasionally catches a rabbit on this property, and he kills it and engulfs it like a lizard, and he seems to do just fine with it. Now, some dogs may have some issues with that. I don't know how big your dogs all in are. But, I see, I think people worry too much about dogs and bones. Dogs are descendants of wild canines. Not all of them are wolves. There's other wild canines out there other than wolves, but all domestic dogs are descendants of wild canines. And every single one of those wild canines is a scavenger and a predator. And if, 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 if they kill something, they eat every stinking bit of it. So let's try answering your question from a different way. Mechanically, <laughs> could the STX Turbo Force grind rabbit bones up? My instinct is absolutely yes. You're probably going to have to do what I said anyway, though, and hack this rabbit into manageable bits. And I think taking a cleaver and just going right through the bones instead of, like, parting it out. That's just too much work for a rabbit you're going to grind. Um, I think it would. Am I advising that you do it? Not really. I, I mean, from an, even regardless of my opinion about it, um, I, I, you know, if it burned up, you probably could return it on warranty and just not tell them that's what happened. I don't think it would. I think that grinder is really powerful. And when I think of rabbit bone, rabbit bone is pretty fragile. It's really easy to break. And I think if you ground it at the coarsest setting... I think it would go right through that thing. I can't say you should do it. I'm just saying I think the grinder would handle it. And, you know, any manufacturer is going to cover their ass, and they're going to take uh, the most conservative approach to how their product should be used. So, I mean, that's up to you. I mean, even the people that sell the Ginsu knife and show you how to cut boots with it will have a little disclaimer that says if you do that shit, your warranty's not good, right? So every manufacturer kind of covers their ass. And so, and if they said it grinded bones, well, what bones? Big old turkey bones? Little bitty chicken bones? 
fish bones, you know. If you were grinding fish for something, I'd stick a whole fish in there. That's fine, right up until you have a tuna, right? So, I mean, I, I think that it's all subjective, but when I think of rabbit bone, I can't see that it wouldn't work. Now, what I would actually advise for you, though, Justin, is way back when in the day, long before I started Survival Podcast, the re one of the reasons I know so much about herbal medicine is I actually started down an educational path toward becoming a master herbalist. And I decided I wasn't going to continue that path, but in that work, um, I was part of different email groups. And in one of those email groups, there was a gal named Lou Olson who uh, was, was finishing up her Ph.D. And her Ph.D. thesis or whatever it is, dissertation, whatever, it was done on canine nutrition. And she was a very heavy advocate of feeding raw chicken to dogs. And her opinion on how to do that was exactly what I said. If the pieces are, you, know, you want them a little bit more manageable, take a big old you know, Chinese meat cleaver and whack, 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 whack. And you, know, you bust the bones up a little bit, cut it into pieces, throw it in a bowl, and let the dog have at it raw. And, and, and you know, chicken bones, oh my God, the dog is going to... No, and what her whole point was is none of these bones are dangerous to dogs until we cook them. When you cook bone, you crystallize bone. Here's an interesting thing to do. Take a, you know, the back of like a heavy knife or take a hammer and take a raw chicken bone and hit it with that hammer and watch the way that it breaks. Now take a, a cooked chicken bone and hit it with a hammer and watch the way that it breaks. It gets crystallized and it'll shatter with those sharp edges. So my one caveat is I have had issues with dogs with bones that were raw bones before, vertebrates and things like that. You know, one time Charlie got into one of his rabbit kills and it was a pretty big rabbit. So instead of swallowing it in two bites, he actually chewed it up and a big old hunk of vertebrae like got stuck up in his teeth and he couldn't get it out and had to like reach in and pull it out. But it really wasn't that big a deal. I'm sure he would have got it out on his own, uh, you know, sooner or later. And my favorite thing to do is not pull meat out of a pit bull's mouth. But he's a good dog, and he let me do it. And he, I gave it back to him, and he chewed it right up and ate it the second time. So there are potential for things like that. You do have to watch. But uh, I recommend you get Lou's book. I have a link to it in the show notes today. Um, and, man, I don't know. If you want to feed your dogs rabbits, go ahead. But, oh, man, that's... High-quality protein you got a lot of work into to be feeding the dogs. Uh, this comes from Keegan. Keegan says, Merry Christmas, you jerk. I decided that for Christmas you deserve a little more than a lump of coal, despite being such a jerk, encouraging us all to live our lives in freedom into our, and take, uh, take our freedom into our own hands. The nerve you have. I decided to get you what you asked for this holiday season. I opened up a blank Excel spreadsheet for the first time in my life. Long story short, after making basic household budgets... There was so much that I wanted to figure out how to do that I checked out a couple of books on Excel from the library. My wife now laughs at me because of how excited I get about this, though she's just as on board as I am. In all serious though, seriousness, though, Jack, thanks for all you do. You have motivated me to make the changes in my life that I knew needed to take place. Keep up the great work. I know I'm not the only one who appreciates what you do. Hope you enjoyed your time off for Christmas. Happy New Year to you and yours, Keegan. Thank you, Keegan. And I am a jerk, and I am proud of it. Um, I even got a, a gift at our 10-year anniversary uh, party from Mark and Thad, father and son uh, group that comes to a lot of my things here. And it said, to Jack, you're a jerk, Spirico. I was, I was pretty proud of that. Anyway, so I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit more about Excel and why I believe it really is a life skill that we should be teaching to our children. And, and I'm going to, again, reiterate why I don't think we do. 
Um, Matt Powers is a uh, former high school teacher that now is a permaculture educator with permaculture lessons tailored to children. But he worked in a charter school, a charter school, where you encourage out-of-the-box thinking. And one of the things that got him into real trouble is he had students figure out, if I'm going to go to school for X, what is X pay and how much is it going to cost me in time and money to become X? And a lot of these students came away with an understanding that what they wanted to do, there's probably a better path than college, or it didn't make sense to go that path. That didn't mean they all weren't going to go to college, but they certainly weren't going to pursue that through college. Well, the number one tool for making determinations of things like that is, is Excel. And again, when I say Excel, I mean spreadsheet programs. I don't care if you use uh, the one that's free from Google, whatever the hell it's called, or I don't care if you use the one from Pages from Apple. It's all the same. It's a little different features here and there, but that's what I mean when I say Excel. Excel allows you to remove emotion from decision-making in anything that's quantifiable in numbers. Because that number doesn't always have to be money. It could be time. And you can't have a group of young people who are being sold the idea that an education is priceless able to use a simple software tool to quantify the value of the education that you're telling them is priceless. Because that'll just screw everything the hell up now, won't it? But this is so much bigger than that. People say, well, I want to go into business. I, I, I've gotten emails from people that they're going to go into business doing duck eggs like I did. And, and they think they're going to make enough money to make their car payment or something. And, and I just look and go, well, did you figure out how many eggs you're going to get a month from this number of ducks? Before we even talk about the... The profit versus the, the expense. Like, if you made 100% on these 12 ducks, and they all gave you an egg a day, which they're not going to, do you understand that, like, the money's not there? Like, this is in a rat. Now, if you want to start there and you're kind of working your way there, which this individual, I had that conversation with, no, he was, well, I just think that that's enough. But you got to do the math. And that you don't need Excel for that basic of math, but if you put it into Excel, all of a sudden it opens up this Pandora's box of everything that's possible. And once you build a spreadsheet to address a specific concern, you change one thing and it changes everywhere. It's, it's power. It's power. It's power to actually predict the future based on variables. So that means that the thing that you're changing may not change. But if it does, this is what the result is going to be. And it allows you to make very sane decisions. I don't, I don't have a specific number because some people make a lot more money than other people. But I look at it this way. If you're going to spend enough money that you have to work a week, whatever that is for you, and you're not making that decision in a sane, rational, and logical manner, then you don't deserve the money. What's that guy from Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, say? You are, you are, you are disrespectful to the money, so the money disrespects you. Right? That's, that's what you're, you're being disrespectful to the money. Now, that doesn't mean that every expenditure of that amount has to go into a spreadsheet. But maybe the money that's available should. So what I mean by that is you set a budget and you have discretionary, you know, you spend this money on anything you want. 
you know, or this much money is budgeted for the vacation, then you take any vacation you want with that money. And this is something I've been trying to get across to my kid and his wife because they both spend money they shouldn't spend. She's a little worse than he is, but he's the pot calling the kettle black a little bit here. Um, and she said, well, he just wants me to not spend money. I'm like, nobody wants you to not spend money. You're going to spend money. But doesn't it make sense that you would come up with a budget as to how much money you get to spend in a, you know, a, a discretionary, just you can do whatever you want with it per month. And whatever that number is, do whatever the hell you want with it. And you can see the resistance because it means I'm giving something up. Not understanding what you're getting. But if you put that number into Excel, here's what happens. You start to look at the cumulative savings and start thinking about the value of that cumulative savings. And then something really weird happens. You turn your eye on all that discretionary spending. And you start to say, do I really need that much discretionary spending? And even if you don't have the courage to change it in the spreadsheet, maybe you just are a little bit tighter with that money this month. And at the end of the month, you just move that extra money over into the investment savings category and start all over. You can do it. You still have that whole amount this month. And then you start to look at the income side of the equation. You start to think to yourself, how do I make that number bigger? This is the number one life skill that we are not teaching our youth. This should, if we're going to have, and I don't, remember, I don't want compulsory education. But if we are going to have a publicly funded compulsory educational uh, system, there should be a required at least half year course in this and only this. How to use Excel and build models in Excel for anything and everything you can think of under the sun. It, th this alone would change the trajectory of our country. We would become a nation of savers and investors versus a nation of spenders and, and borrowers. From this one, no one has to make you do anything once you actually look at the numbers. I don't know how many people have gone into business and when you look at their business model a year into it and they're broke, they're go you go, how, how did you, how did you think you would end up anything but broke? If you were more successful, you'd actually be more broke with your model. And they go, model? You don't even know you have a model. See, that's the thing. That's what Excel models are. They are a, a tactical, a, a tactile, you know, real hard uh, picture of the model you have. See, if you don't have a family budget, you still have a financial model. You just don't know what it looks like. And I think a lot of times for people, this is a lot like going to the doctor. I don't want to go to the doctor because then I'll find out what's wrong when they already know what's wrong. Well, you're 300 pounds overweight. I kind of think you probably have high blood pressure. But as long as they don't go to the doctor, it's not real. Don't let fear rob you of your potential in life. Learn this skill. It, it, this is, again, I asked for it for Christmas. You can give me a gift. If you love this show... And you want to do something for me, learn to use Excel this month and start using it in your life. And I promise you, you'll be sending me an email a lot like Keegan's in the near future if you do. Next up, Daniel says, what pump would you recommend for a small aquaponic system with flexibility, but also without breaking the bank? I'm planning on building a small aquaponic system, most likely with a 100-gallon fish tank and just a couple grow beds to see if I like it or not. 
I would like flexibility to increase the size but stay lower in cost. Thanks, Daniel. This is one of those things I don't think you should overthink, but I'm going to lead off with two pumps that will work. But you don't have to use either one of them. Um, there's a company called Homacy, H-O-M-A-S-Y. They make some pretty good little pumps. They're on the bestsellers list at Amazon. They're fairly well-reviewed, and most of the people that have negative reviews of them Um, yeah, they don't understand pumps. Um, they just don't. Uh, some, there's some negative, that's actual negative, and any kind of small, inexpensive electronics device are going to have some lemons. With Amazon, you can always return it, you, you know, etc. That's why I like recommending them for stuff like this. But there's a 400-gallon-per-hour pump that's $23.99, and that is about as small a pump as I would go with. They have a 920-gallon-per-hour Um, for 28 bucks, That would be kind of the minimum pump that I would absolutely recommend for people to use. Uh, but I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, because, first of all, when you do an aquaponics system, you're either going to be doing a flow-through wicking bed, which you just need a trickle of water delivered to every bed. That's all you need. On some levels, the slower the better, because the longer the water maintains in contact with the rock media that's in there, And so the more time it gets for the bacteria to do their job. So just you're going to have a piss trickle flow through those. So if it's a small system, you have one or two of those, you don't need much. Or you're going to do an ebb and flow bed. This, of course, is a bed where the water fills up to a certain point, triggers a bell siphon, and drops back down. Now, the thing about that is, is like even this little 900-gallon pump, even with two beds, it's going to give you more power than you can run to those two beds. Because when you do an ebb and flow bed, If you turn the water all the way up, what will happen is it'll fill up. It'll trigger the siphon. The siphon will drop the water out, and then it'll stay stuck, and it'll never break. Right? Because you're running it too fast for it to break. Or it will overfill the bed, if you can really run it, faster than the siphon can empty it. I doubt that's going to happen to you in this situation, but it, that's your other option. But you have to throttle the water back with a valve to find the rate of flow that balances that. And then assuming you don't have any clogs or anything like that, you pretty much don't have to touch it ever again. I find that you know every couple of weeks it makes sense to go at least make sure they're functioning daily. I go look at them, and then you know every few weeks I really take a close look, make sure everything's functioning right, is the water flowing, etc. Um, but yeah, that's you're just not gonna you're not gonna use the full potential of the pump. But there's a couple of things we need to understand. So this is a 920-gallon-per-hour pump, and that sounds like an awful lot. Um, that is, and it says it's, it's high lift, which means the highest it can put water to is 9.8 feet into the air. Now, what that doesn't mean is that it can deliver 920 gallons an hour to, to you know, almost 10 feet in the air. At 9.8 feet, that means it will be piss-trickling out at that height. So at 2 feet, you ain't getting 920 gallons an hour. 920 gallons an hour is what the pump is theoretically capable of at the nozzle where the water comes out. We all paint ourselves in the best light, so do manufacturers. Okay, So a 920-gallon-per-hour submersible pump doing four feet of lift, which is pretty typical for a system like this, and then across distance also affects it as well, is probably going to be able to deliver in the neighborhood of somewhere around 300 gallons an hour. And you're not going to run it that fast. And, and that would turn an entire 100-gallon system over every hour, or three times an hour, which is way more than you need. 
I do want to talk about some ways to make these pumps last longer, though. Um, this, these two pumps here actually do have kind of a throttle adjustment to how much they're producing. That's a nice thing, but I pretty much run mine full on all the time and do the things I'm going to talk about here in a second. But what these pumps, none of these pumps are meant to do is be restricted heavily over a long period of time. So if the pump, let's say, is capable of 500 gallons an hour, and you're only using 100 gallons an hour to deliver to a couple beds, let's say, um, then you're restricting 400 gallons of capacity of that pump. And that's putting pressure on that pump. And that will shorten the lifetime of that pump. Think of it, it's, it's, think of it like blood pressure for your heart. Right? If your heart was a mechanical pump instead of a biological pump, with our hearts, the muscle becomes thicker and it becomes less pliable and we get constricted valves and things like that. Uh, in a mechanical pump, we end up with other problems. But when we're making more pr back pressure, we're going to wear out mechanical components more quickly and have failures in the pump more, more frequently. So what do we do about that? What you do, and if you look at all my systems... What you'll see is the pump coming up out of the sump, whatever the lowest tank is in the system, you'll see a valve that comes off and points right back at that sump. And that valve allows me to adjust it and just recirculate water and put oxygen in it. Just, just running. Right? It looks like a faucet running in a sink. But all it is is the water just flipping over. And then what you do is you set all your, your peripherals, you know, wherever you're going to tanks and stuff like that, and you might find, well, I, have to, I have to restrict that a little bit now to get that water that I'm pushing further out. If I run it wide open, I might not get any water to my furthest bed. So we restrict that till we can get the flow we're looking for from everywhere else, and we turn that up to the point where we don't lose flow. We turn up to where we do lose flow, and we back it off to where we don't, where it gives us what we want. That pump is now running, for all intents and purposes, pretty much not restricted. It's been able to, It's got an outlet for all the pressure that it's generating. You're just deciding where the pressure goes. That pump's going to last longer. The other thing is you might want to look at putting a filter box around your pump uh, or even just a five-gallon bucket and put your pump in that with a bunch of holes drilled in it. You can put foam around that, create a foam intake. That's good, too, because it's more space for biology. It's like putting an intake filter on an aquarium tank pump. Uh, it's the same type of theory. That, that sponge becomes places where all of your biological media or your, all your, your, uh, your good bacteria can colonize and do a better job with the nitrite-nitrate cycle. Um, but the pumps that I recommended are both under 30 bucks. And for a small system like you're building, that I, would, I would rather you buy two $25 pumps, two $30 pumps, spend 50 to 60 bucks, put one on the shelf, so if the one you're using dies, your fish don't die, you can swap them out then buy one $60 pump in that situation. You'll always be able to figure out something to do with it, and if nothing else, you can barter the pump, throw it on eBay, what have you. But that's kind of where I would go. Uh, Home Depot and Lowe's sell a lot of pumps in the $50 range. They're pretty good pumps. Um, I, I don't have a problem with those either, but again, kind of the, these the, these homes that... Uh, Homassy. Home, well, I can't say it now. The, these pumps that I have linked to, um, they're in that kind of price range where if it breaks, you don't get that upset about it. And you just throw another one in there. And then if you like it long-term, you think about kind of upgrading quality long-term. And you still take that old one, the cheap one, as long as you have a system where that size will work, and you just put it on the shelf and it's there as a backup. And if nothing else, if your big pump burns out and you don't have one on the shelf like you should, you know, if you have a couple of these, you can at least put them into your main tanks and get some recirculation going until you get a new pump. 
So spare pumps are always a good idea. These two are pretty decent little pumps. Uh, and I would go with the, the larger one of the two that I've linked to for you in today's show notes. Let's go to take another one. This one comes from Jay. Jay says, how should I handle silver for inheritance? Details I'm following putting a will together. Should I leave out any mention of silver I'm saving as part of inheritance for kids, etc.? Keep it off the radar. If so, should I simply write up something and sign it all on my own? As always, thanks for your advice. Jack, Jay in Connecticut. Um, let's start off with the concept of why you would want to keep this off the radar. There's two reasons. One is taxation, and the other is just simply the government knowing that somebody has something. On a taxation, right now, the death tax deduction to the estate is something like $11 million or $12 million. So unless you're leaving behind $11 or $12 million, as of right now, um, you don't really need to worry about the taxation thing. If you are leaving behind $11 million or more, well, then you should have a good estate planner doing your estate planning anyway, and I would not be the person that you should be asking about this. Right? Even... Years ago, it was still like a one to three million dollar deduction. I think it was either 2011 or 2012. It was basically repealed, and there was no deduction. And people were paying anybody for one year was paying tax on any inheritance. And then it went away, and it went to five million dollars from the previous one or two million dollars. And they made that five million semi permanent. The current number, which is through the roof, is got a sunset date and will eventually go away. But $5 million is a pretty stable number for right now. For That would be what any estate planner would be basing it on. And if they change it, then we'll change the estate plan. All right. So the silver you're going to leave your kids or what have you is not going to cross that threshold. So you're not worried about anything to do with tax You know, if you're under a million dollars in the value of your estate. And if, again, I think if you're over a million dollars in the value of your estate, you should be looking at trusts and things like that and ways to, to mitigate it. And even in some strategic uh, situations... Uh, whole life insurance, et cetera, where you can create other loopholes. Uh, this is for high net worth individuals, not the average person. Um, just my thoughts. Now, on the silver itself, number one, I think it's really important that there is something that can tell family members, this is what Jay wants. Jay wanted everybody to have this much of X, Y, and Z. And the best place to do that and the way that it's legally enforceable is in a will. The other thing, though, is those are your emergency preps. Okay, If I die next week, then I want this to happen, and I want it in this way. If you get to grow old, Jay, and hopefully you will, like many of us will, then I think the best way to hand your silver over is when you get to a point where you believe that person that will be inheriting that portion of your silver is at a point where they can be trusted with it, to say, this is part of your inheritance. Here's your silver in a box. And this is what I want you to do with it. And this is why. Now, I've given it to you. You don't have to. But this was my intent. And I think that'll be a lot more powerful than just, hey, Uncle Jay left you you know, 50 ounces of silver and said he should you know, see it as a way to save for the long term. Because when he does the math, you know, your, your nephew might just go, 50 ounces of silver, that buys a lot of beer, right? When you sit down and say, I'm having this conversation with you as we get older, I've put this money away in silver, 
there may be other inheritance that you're going to be getting when I do pass away, but I wanted to do this now. And then, again, it's between you, that person, and the fence post. And teaching people about generational transfer of wealth that way, I think, is a good thing. And I would advise you and anybody you plan on doing this with to read The Richest Man in Babylon. One of the takeaways from that story is there are times in that story, you know, because the story is multiple stories retold, the same thing over and over again. Uh, but very wealthy individuals actually choose not to leave their money to their heirs, but rather to put their business under the care of someone else who has proven themselves to respect the money. So I think that would be everybody should read that book probably at least every other year. Um, is what I would say on an ongoing basis. Next up, I got a question from Kiernan uh, or Michael in the podcast comments on eggs. He says, one, how many eggs can a person safely consume in a month before they might have some negative side effects, assuming the person is averaging the consumption out daily, i.e. some amount every day? Two, is there any negative side effects to overconsumption of eggs? Uh, then what are they? And are they short-term or long-term or permanent? 20 years ago and before, I had often heard people say that you should not consume more than one egg a day because to do so would cause cholesterol and heart disease. However, in recent years, I see on the Internet pop-ups and articles saying that nonsense, eggs are packed with some good stuff, and one can eat unlimited amounts. Finally, any views on hen's eggs versus duck eggs uh, on the above questions? Can you suggest a maximum number per day, per month, and uh, any other views you have on this? Kiernan. Uh, well, see, look, let me look at it this way. Is there too, can you eat too many eggs? Sure. Of course you can. If you consume enough calories to make you a fat ass, then you're going to become a fat ass. So I, I don't think it is, you know, X number of eggs have certain amount of a toxin that we can deal with, and then if we go beyond that number, no, you need to you need to control what you eat. And one of the things about eggs is it probably would be difficult to eat too many eggs because they, you know, especially if you're leaving the yolks in like you should be, the amount of fat they have, they're very filling. And you're only going to eat so many eggs. So I think as a practical thing, you're not going to eat too many eggs. Could you? You can do a lot of things. Again, I always say this, you could put your penis in a beehive and beat on the roof if you really want to, but you probably shouldn't. So you could probably force yourself to get sick eating eggs, but, you know, a practical standpoint, you're probably not going to do it. Um, I, I know people that have eaten eggs every day of their life for breakfast and are healthy people. All right, I'll just say that. And I know people that have never eaten an egg that are just sickly people. So I, I think it's more like it's a food. That's what it is. And unless you're eating eggs 24-7 and you're eating way too many calories in eggs for what your body can process, you're probably not going to have a problem. There are people with certain sensitivities, etc., that can't eat eggs or certain kinds of eggs. That brings me to my next thing. The number one thing I think that causes problems for people with eggs is soy. Uh, most Uh, poultry is fed soy, especially laying poultry, even organic. And soy has phytoestrogens in it. And if you think about what an egg is, an egg is an ovum. That's what it is. It's an ovum. It is the chicken has all of these eggs when it's born, just like a human female. It only has so many. That's why females go through something called menopause. And eventually they become postmenopausal and they no longer are fertile. Because the eggs are gone. And that's how a chicken works. A chicken is born with a thousand of these little things. And they are an ovum. If it's fertilized, makes a baby chicken. 
And where do you think we might concentrate our estrogen if we are a female? <laughs> so when we feed all these, these synthetic basics, they're not synthetic because they are natural, but we, we, we feed these estrogen derivatives, I guess, to a chicken in large quantities that that chicken would never eat in the wild. It concentrates them. And if we have somebody eating that egg that has a sensitivity to estrogen, then they're going to have a higher sensitivity to that egg than normal foods. I think that's one of the primary things that people have problems with eggs. Um, as far as duck eggs and chicken eggs, from a culinary standpoint, duck eggs are so much better in every way, I just can't even begin to describe it. That's one of the reasons we had to bring ducks back to the farm. I've got to have at least a small uh, flock of laying ducks. I can't wait till about March when this new flock starts laying for me. The eggs, especially when they are cooked from a standpoint of like an over-easy with a runny yolk, they are so rich and so delicious. They're higher in protein, higher in calories, and higher in fat. The way I look at that is each egg gives me more nutritional value than a chicken egg. That also means that, like, you know, we talked about calorie intake and what have you, that it would be easier per number of eggs eaten to eat too many calories. And that's all I would look at is what your caloric intake is. As someone that stays primarily low-carb, I'm more concerned about total carbohydrates. But... And I don't think it's as simple as eat less, then you burn, and you lose weight, because that burn changes. How far is the damper back on the stove? And a lot of things that we do that we consider dieting and healthy damper down the stove and slow the metabolic rate of the furnace, and we burn less. So, yeah, we've restricted our, our, our calories down, you know, uh, let's say a 1,000 below what they were eating if we were doing a really bad job in the past. But we've dropped our metabolism back 1,100, and we're 100 in the detriment because of the burn rate. With food like eggs, it's, it's high in fat, which the human body is optimized to burn. It's, it's difficult to do, but it can be done. So watch how much the total quantity of food is. And I don't know most people that want to eat eggs every day. That said, we had one customer. Um, his son got sick on every type of food he ate. The only thing he ate was our duck eggs. And it was the only thing that made him better. Now, that's anecdotal, and it's one person. But it was the only thing. And we made sure that when we sold off our ducks, we put them in touch with somebody uh, that wanted to sell eggs. But I, I do think a lot of that had to do with what we feed the birds because they said that, you know, they wanted more than we could basically give them. This kid was eating like a dozen eggs a day or something like that. And uh, they went to another store that sold duck eggs to get someone we didn't have any during a shortage, and he got sick on those. And, and I'm back to soy. I'm back, and they were supposedly organic, whatever the hell that meant by whoever was selling them. But, you know, they weren't selling them conventional feed. And in some ways, the feed we use, the Texas Natural Feed, is, is less uh, of a quality than an organic feed because it can have conventionally grown uh, produce in it. But it's a peanut meal based meat, uh, uh, a peanut based uh, food, and it doesn't have soy. And we ended up figuring out that was the one that did the best for the most of our customers. Anyway, uh, brings me to my final uh, question of the day for you guys today. And I, I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about carbon cookware. And it does, I'll just say right up, the item of the day is the Lodge Carbon Steel Skillets. You should check them out at T-Spaz. And whenever you shop at T-Spaz, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And I'll leave it at that today because it's more of a content thing. Um, over the years, I have tried out tremendous different types of cookware. 
Uh, just about every type of nonstick, T-Fowl, blah, 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 Cuisinart, yada, yada, yada. Greystone, I've even recommended those. And I do think they're pretty good pots. Uh, from, 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 from pans that are $200 a pan, of $40 a pan, of $10 a pan. And I've tried it all. And it all, quote, unquote, works. Right? How well does it work? How resilient is it? And what's the lifetime investment value? When it comes down to carbon steel versus cast iron, even old school cast iron that's like a smooth surface milled, like the old Griswolds and stuff, the big thing is even the thinner cast iron, relatively speaking, takes a lot more energy to heat up and, and, and to keep hot. I mean, we're talking about how good cast iron um, you know, holds heat. Well, when you drop a, a cold steak on it, even a room temperature steak that you've let come to temp, It drops the temperature where you put that steak, and it, it takes a certain amount of energy to bring it back up and to hold it you know, at, a, at a minimum temperature. And the, 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 the carbon steel has, been, has just exceeded, in my experience, performance in the kitchen and on the grill, etc., anything cast iron can do. And the availability... So the other thing we always talk when we talk about cast iron, we talk about the old cast iron. And the reason we talk about that is back in the day, there were basically two grades of cast iron. There was milled and non-milled. And almost all the cast iron today, with the exception of some very expensive custom cookware, I'm talking stuff you're going to spend $1,000 for a set of pans and pots. And I ain't doing that, right, is non-milled. So if you think about how cast iron works, you pour the, 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 the cast iron, you cast the iron into a sand mold. And then it hardens and you take off the sand. And that's why when you get a, like a lodge skillet and you look at it, it's got those little beads on it. They didn't put those beads there. They were formed in the casting process. And in the old days, they would mill those beads off so they would be nice and smooth if you wanted to pay a little bit more for your cast iron uh, skillet or your Dutch oven or whatever. Well, they don't do that anymore. The steel, the carbon steel, is smooth. That's what we're looking for in the cast iron. It's in carbon steel. And I believe one of the main reasons that they stopped making it is because chefs and cooks, etc., that are more demanding of their cookware, just switched over to, to carbon steel because it just worked better. Especially when we stopped cooking on fireplace hearths and in campfires. Everything I said about heat, retention, how much energy. If you're putting a cast iron skillet onto a bed of hot coals, it's irrelevant. That thing's going to get streaming hot. You have to do more work to control and keeping it from getting too hot than anything else. And it works better in those settings than anything else. So, you know, I have a fire pit in the backyard. Every once in a while it's fun to cook something in a Dutch oven or something like that out there. And, and I'm, I'm still on board the cast iron train for that. But for the kitchen, carbon steel. As far as the maintenance, it's almost exactly the same. And this is what I love about it. If you do cook something that's kind of sticky or whatever, heat the pan up, stick it in the, uh, over the sink, turn the cold water on. 90% of everything just falls off. I use the ringer, the little chainmail thing, to clean my pans. If there's something that's a little bit more stuck on, maybe use a little kosher salt, like a, like a, a scouring powder, and it, it works. It, it's, easy. They come pre-seasoned. The seasoning on them, unlike, I, I find the pre-seasoning on cast iron to be a little lackluster. It, it's, it's just not that great. Um, the seasoning on the carbon skillets, I've gotten brand new carbon skillets from Lodge. Took them out, rinsed them off, threw them on the stove, cooked on them, and egg doesn't stick. If you know how to cook. 
I got to say that, right? Um, but you clean them, put a little oil on them, heat them back up, wipe them down. Hang, and I hang mine outside. I have a big pot rack out of my outdoor kitchen now, and that's my process. I clean the pan, put a little bit of oil on it. I hang it up outside in the elements. They don't rust there. They're not going to rust in your cabinet. So I, I'm just, at this point, a huge fan of carbon steel cookware. And even my wok, I have a big heavy-duty cast iron wok from Lodge. And it's just really hard, even with my big badass burner on my stove, to really get that thing as hot as I want. So I'm thinking about going to a carbon steel wok. The exception is the little mini cast iron wok from Lodge. I love that thing. Oh, I love that thing. For deep frying. It's so perfect. It's, it's little, so you only use about a quart of oil in it. But it has that deep bowl shape. So you can throw a couple, three pieces of fish, four pieces of fish in there to deep fry it. Uh, I do deep fried uh, wings where you're not breading them. You're just deep frying chicken wings so you get the skin crisp. Man, that is just the bomb. I love it for that. But day to day, I've become a carbon steel kitchen. And I really believe people that make that switch, you'll never get them to switch back. No matter how you try to sell them on some other expensive cooker, they'll be like, I already do that. And it's cheap, and you can't, you can't mess it up. If you overheat it and burn the freaking seasoning off, all you do is reseason it and go back to your life. It is, it is just, it is a game changer in the kitchen. So I wanted to throw that out at the end of today's show. With that, we've come to the end of another show. I uh, wanted to remind you guys again that if you like the show and want to uh, and support us, do consider doing your online shopping at T-Spaz and or becoming an MSB member. Let's talk about our song of the day today. We're going into Garth Brooks week this week. Um, and this is probably one of, if not, I don't, I don't know that I have a favorite Garth Brooks song. I really think I'd have to have like a top five, and I would struggle with who goes in that top five, and then I would vacillate on, on ranking those five. But this would be in that list, The Dance. I, I've always, always loved this song. Just, just thought it was fantastic in so many, so many different ways. I wanted to give you a little bit of the story on this song. Of course, everybody knows Garth Brooks, but Garth Brooks didn't write this song. A guy named Tony Arata wrote this song, along with a guy named Henry Drysdale Wood. Um, but when Tony uh, Arata co-wrote this tune, he was a little-known Nashville songwriter. Uh, at a random open mic night at Nashville's Douglas Corner, he met another little-known songwriter named Garth Brooks. He said, we were both doing whatever we could just to stay in Nashville, trying to get our songs heard by anybody. The only folks listening, however, were other songwriters, and no one else was usually at our shows. Arata recalled on his website, when Garth heard the song, The Dance, he told Arata that if he ever got a record deal, he was going to cut it. And the rest, of course, was history. The song is, is really about, you know, being better off not knowing how things are going to work out so that we get to experience them in the first place. Um, it, it just, it's better not to know how things will end. Because if that happens to be a negative, then you would lose the experience that was wonderful along the way. That romances end, but a lot of times we treasure the good parts of them. That sometimes people that we really love die way too soon. But if we would have never become part of what they're all about, we would have denied ourselves that opportunity. And we would have denied them the opportunity to have us in their life. Um, it's just, 
I've always loved that. But of course, to me, it goes back to the dash. Right? Make the most of the time you have because you don't know when it's going to end. But also, it, it makes me think of, like, I've had conversations with people about my childhood, and it was a mix of good and bad, but it was a lot of bad. You know, I did not have anything approaching a normal upbringing as a child. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like pity parties, so I don't go into it. But let's just say I pretty much took care of myself since the time I was, like, 15 years old. And I'm okay with that. And I've had people say, well, like, You know, you try to give your, your kid, and you did try to give your kid a, a much better life, and I think I did, and, you know, you're involved as a grandparent with your grandkids, and you, you, would you ever want your childhood for somebody else? No, I would not wish that on anybody. But if you could go back and change it, would you? Absolutely not. No freaking way would I change that. No way. How much of what I have today would I lose? Would I have even met my wife if I had a George, you know, uh, what do you leave it to Beaver childhood? Right? Would, would, would I even have met my wife? Would I have even come to Texas? Would I have joined the army for the good and the bad that that was? What, what, how much would I not have? Would I have ever become an entrepreneur if I was a straight A student in school? And went to college. Is there any way I could be doing the types of things? Could I be doing something better? I don't know. I, I love what I have. And there are a lot of things along the way in my life, just like anybody's life, that seemed really good at the time and they ended badly. But I've learned from those things. They've made me who I am. That's what this song's all about. And if you haven't figured it out by now, going into 11 years of doing it, it's kind of what this show's all about. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Looking back on the memory of the dance we shared beneath the stars above. For a moment, all the world was right. And how could I have known that you'd ever say goodbye? And now, I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. I've missed the pain But I'd have had to miss The dance Holding you I held everything For a moment Wasn't I the king If I'd only known how the king would fall Hey, who's to say, you know I might have changed it all And now, I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end 
missed 